0: Turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And this morning we'll look at the first eight verses of this psalm. Here we are introduced to the relationship between God's law and our happiness. The psalmist will tell us that true blessedness comes only to those who walk in God's laws. And by the end of our time this morning, we will see that those who walk by the Spirit fulfill the law. So in the first half of the message this morning, we'll look at these eight verses from Psalm 119, and then in the second half, we'll look at one principle about God's law, and we'll examine some passages of Scripture to help us understand it, and we'll seek to apply it in our lives. So follow along as I read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes, Do not utterly forsake me. Well, let's just take this verse by verse and we'll probably spend a little more time on verse one than we do on some of the others as we're just getting started here. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. What does it mean to be blessed? The word could be translated as happy. George Zemeck described it as a deeply rooted joy. It's Life the way it's supposed to be, the way it was designed to be. It's when you have deep fulfillment. Brian Borgman says that how blessed is like saying, how rewarding is the life. So let me ask you as we get started, what makes you happy? What do you think would bring you fulfillment, joy, a rewarding life? The psalmist here tells us the right answer of what will bring us true joy and reading between the lines corrects our wrong answers as well. So the right answer is that blessedness comes from keeping God's law, walking in it. Now that doesn't sound quite right to our ears, does it? Keeping laws will make me happy? So what exactly does he mean? Well, in a sense... This entire psalm is going to help us understand the answer to those questions. But here's a start. The God who made you and who made the world knows how it works best. He knows what brings joy and what brings sorrow. He knows what brings honor and what brings shame. He made us in his image to be like him. And the law is a revealing of his character. So when we look at the law, we see what God is like and we see what we were made to be like. The problem is that because of sin, we just don't believe it. We think we'll find happiness in lots of other things, but we're not seeing things the right way. John Calvin comments on what the psalmist is saying in this verse. He says, first of all, he would have us know that we do not understand what our chief blessedness consists of, and the reason is because we're blind and live in the world as savage and wild beasts that are utterly void of sense and reason. We allow ourselves to be led and carried away by our brutish and swinish affections and desires, and the fact that we are thus carried away is a manifest sign and token that either We do not discern good from evil, or else the devil has so bewitched us that we think not a whit of it at all. Can I say that I think Calvin is unfortunately describing the condition of many of us? We have ideas of good and evil that are often shaped more by the culture or by our own ideas more than by what God has revealed to us in his law. We operate according to good intentions or traditions, or the example we see in others, or our own desires in our heart, or what the laws of men say. The Puritan Thomas Manton wrote that men make laws as tailors make garments to fit the crooked bodies they serve for, to suit the humors of the people to be governed by these laws. So We can't trust man's laws as a guide to happiness because they're measured by the wrong standard unless they're patterned after God's law. If you go into a bookstore today, you'll see a large section called self-help. Books that give you advice on how you can fix or improve yourself. But the psalmist tells us that the only place to look for that help is the law of God. Dan Estes writes that self-direction does not lead to happiness but the good life is ordered according to the way of the Lord. Everyone wants to be happy, but not everyone understands that our unhappiness comes from sin. And the only one who can rescue us from that is God. All those other ideas and approaches do not lead to true happiness. If you left here this morning and you headed south on I-71, And I asked you where you were going, and you told me, Cleveland, I'd have good reason to doubt you. You're heading toward Columbus, not Cleveland. And when people, especially Christians, operate according to some other standard than God's law, they're not heading toward blessedness. They're heading toward trouble. So what the psalmist calls us to do is to walk in the way of the Lord to walk in the law of the Lord. What does it mean to walk in God's law? Charles Spurgeon said, the holy life is a walk, a steady progress, a quiet advance, a lasting continuance. And Richard Brooks explains it this way. He says, We must make God's word, God's law, the rule of all our thoughts, all our actions, and all our affections. Now, remember, we're talking about blessedness. Where is true happiness found? Thomas Manton, again, writes, sincere, constant, uniform obedience to God's law is the only way to true blessedness. That's what it looks like to walk in God's law. He goes on to explain. He says, this is called a way, and this way is said to be God's law, And in this way, we must be undefiled, which implies not absolute purity and legal perfection, but gospel sincerity. And in this way, we must walk, which notes both uniformity and constancy. It must be our course. We must preserve, persevere, excuse me, therein. So he recognizes that we're not going to do it perfectly. But walking in God's law means that this is what our life is characterized by. It's our course or path of life. And that means we have to place a high priority on it. Before we move on to the second verse, let me share one more quote. And I know there's a lot of quotes this morning. It's just because I found so many things that I thought were helpful that I couldn't resist sharing with you. This one is from Charles Spurgeon, and this is kind of summarizing what this verse means practically. What difference should this make in your life today? Spurgeon says, as David thus begins his psalm, so should young men begin their lives. So should new converts commence their profession. So should all Christians begin every day. Settle it in your hearts as a first postulate and sure rule of practical science that Holiness is happiness and that it is our wisdom to first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well begun is half done. To start with a true idea of blessedness is beyond measure important. Man began with being blessed in his innocence and if our fallen race is ever to be blessed again, it must find it where it lost it at the beginning. Namely, in conformity to the command of the Lord. Well, moving on to verse 2, there's a lot that could be said about verse 2 as well, but I'll try to be concise and then we'll kind of really keep it moving through these other verses. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. These verses give, or excuse me, this verse gives two descriptions of a blessed man. Number one, he keeps God's testimonies. And number two, he seeks God with his whole heart. Testimonies, you'll remember, are connected to God's covenant. They're his witness, his agreements or promises made with his people. And we're supposed to keep God's testimonies, to keep the demands of the covenant. And there's two parts to keeping God's testimonies. First, you have to know them. And second, you have to obey them. So James Montgomery Boyce writes, from the beginning, we are to understand that this keeping of the law is a practical matter, a way of life, not merely a course of academic study. On the other hand, it's also clear that we cannot live by the Bible unless we know it well. That means if we're going to do what the psalmist is saying, we have to study God's law, learn it, know it. And God hasn't left us in the dark about this. Micah 6 verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He has told you, he has revealed it in his law, his testimonies. But not only do we need to know God's testimonies, we must keep them, obey them. The laws of the United States are there to be obeyed, not just to be known. If you know the law, but you don't obey it, in the eyes of the court, you're still guilty. It's not just about knowing, because knowing by itself is not enough. But when we know God's testimonies and we obey them, there's great benefit. We're blessed when we keep his testimonies. Spurgeon describes it this way. He says, Revealed truth is meant for practical use. And therefore, it must be kept or followed as men keep to a path or a line of business. If we keep God's testimonies, they will keep us. They will keep us right in opinion, comfortable in spirit, holy in conversation, hopeful in expectation. So the blessed man keeps God's testimonies and this verse tells us that the blessed man seeks God with his whole heart. We're going to touch on this idea a bit more at the end this morning, but for now, let me just share one thought that kind of jumped off the page as I was studying this week, and this is from George Zemek. He says, The purpose of knowing the Word of God is to know the God of the Word. The purpose of knowing the Word of God is to know the God of the Word. Seek Him with your whole heart. The blessed man seeks God with his whole heart. How? through knowing and obeying his law. You want to know God? Read his word. Obey his word. You can't seek God with your whole heart and yet ignore what God has said to do. You can't say that you want to serve God but not submit to what he says. The blessed man keeps God's testimonies and seeks him with his whole heart. Verse 3. "...who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways." So the blessed man does no wrong. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? How many of us can say that we do no wrong? The reality is that we all do wrong, but the psalmist's point here is that when we learn God's law and we obey God's law, we avoid sin. And when we choose obedience over sin, we're blessed. Now, this doesn't mean that we should all move to a monastery to avoid temptations, No, God calls us to live in this world. But his law teaches us how to do that, how to live in this world in obedience to him. And God's law speaks to every area of life. Spurgeon describes the blessed person here. He says they attend not only to the great main highway of the law, but to the small paths of the particular precepts. Every law in God's word is there for a reason. It teaches us something. We need to be obedient to the whole thing. And throughout this series, we'll learn more of what that looks like. In 1 John, John writes to the believers about how we are called to live without sin. But he also says that when we do sin, there's forgiveness in Christ. So he says, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then he goes on to describe what the life of a Christian should be characterized by. Not in perfection, we know we can't do that, but what characterizes him, his general pattern or way of life. And here's what John writes. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Keep that connection of love in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Obedience to God's law is the evidence that we are walking in God's ways following Jesus. Verse 4 of Psalm 119 tells us that you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Here we see the authority of God. He's the one who commands his, his precepts to be kept diligently. He has the right to do this. We have human authorities that we know we must obey. Parents, employers, law enforcement. How much more right does God have as our creator? The Bible says that sin is transgressing the law. 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. Not keeping God's law, not obeying his precepts diligently is sin. When Nathan came to confront King David about his sin, he said to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? See, Nathan says that when David did what was evil, he was despising the word of the Lord. We want to be people who obey God's word diligently. Verse 5 Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. See, now we are led to a problem. Why why does the psalmist say this? Why does he cry out with this request? Because he's not there yet. He knows that he's not steadfast, but inconsistent. He doesn't always keep God's statutes. His ways are sometimes crooked. Dan Estes writes in his exclamation in verse five, the psalmist implies that his obedience is imperfect. He longs to be consistent in obeying God's statutes and for his practices to conform better to the Lord's pattern. So let me ask you, does it bother you that you fail to keep God's laws? What bothers you more? How high the standard of God's law is or your failure to meet it? Where does your complaint really lie? With the strictness of God's requirements or with your own disobedience to them? Thomas Manton writes that this is something that really reveals our hearts. He says, It much discovers a man's heart, what he counts to be his bondage and yoke. Which do we groan under, the burden of the law or the body of death? Remember what Paul says, he's groaning because of that body of death. It's not that the law is the problem, it's his own sinful self. So do you think the problem is that God's law is too restrictive or do you see that the problem is your own sinful heart? But God wants us to come to him for strength. Manton goes on to encourage us to ask God for the power to obey. He says, what God has required at our hands, that same thing we may desire at his hands. God is no Pharaoh to require brick where he gives no straw. So turn to God for the power to obey. Charles Bridges encourages us in the same way. He says, Let a sense of your helplessness for the work of the Lord lead you to the throne of grace, to pray and watch and wait for the strengthening and refreshing influences of the spirit of grace. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. In verse 6, we find another result of obedience to God's law. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. When man first sinned in the Garden of Eden, the result was shame. Adam and Eve hid from God because they were ashamed. Sin brings shame. We all know that because we all experience it. We do something and we know we shouldn't have. We're embarrassed that we spoke the way we did. We've damaged a relationship and now it's hard to be around that person. Sin brings shame. But in Jesus Christ, there is an end to shame. When we have faith in Jesus, we're justified in God's sight. He declares us not guilty, righteous, Not because of anything in ourselves, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And the result of that is that our condemnation and our shame is taken away. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some manuscripts add, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Disobeying God's laws is walking according to the flesh, but we're supposed to walk by the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who empowers us to obey God's law. Note that the psalmist says also in this verse that he has his eyes fixed on all God's commandments. This is universal obedience, he's not picking and choosing. R.J. Rushdoony gets at this idea when he writes that since man is totally the creature of God and since there's not a fiber of his being which is not the handiwork of God and therefore subject to the total law of God, there's not an area of man's life and being which can be held in reservation from God and his law. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Verse 7 gives us one proper response to God's laws. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. So we see here in this verse that we need to learn God's righteous rules. That takes work. We don't just naturally know them. Yes, all men have a sense of right and wrong and a knowledge that God exists, and that we are accountable to him, but we need to learn his law. And this means not just head knowledge, but also that practical obedience to it. And if the proper response in the psalmist's day was praise for what he learned in God's law, then how much more so for us today? Think of how much more God has revealed to us in Christ We of all people should learn God's law and praise him in response. Here's Thomas Manton again. He says, the canon is now larger. Okay, we have the rest of scripture. The mysteries of the word are more clearly unfolded because we've seen Jesus. If the saints of God were so taken with it before when there were so scanty and dark representations in comparison of what is now, Oh, what honor and praise do we now owe to God? So the psalmist praises. But not only in word, he also praises with an upright heart. This is praise with mouth and with the whole life. Psalm 103.1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. In verse 8, then, we see the psalmist's humble resolve. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. He wants to keep God's laws, but he knows his own weakness. His desire is to obey, but he knows his sinful heart. So he resolves to obey, but he also prays that God's presence will strengthen him to do so. Manton explains that when the psalmist, when he was most upright in his own resolution, is most diffident of his own strength. Oh, forsake me not, implying if God should forsake him, all would come to nothing. God must enable us to do what we resolve. So be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Ephesians 6.10. Or as Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Well, as we walk through Psalm 119, each week I want to give you one principle about God's law. Often it'll be directly drawn from the verses that we're talking about, sometimes a little more loosely connected. We'll explain it, we'll see it in scripture, we'll work to apply it, and usually that'll mean looking at a specific part of God's law and seeing how it applies to our lives today. And here's the principle that I want you to see this morning. Those who walk by the Spirit fulfill the law. Those who walk by the Spirit fulfill the law. Turn with me now to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 25. Turn there. I want you to see it. It won't be up on the screen. Make sure it's there in front of you. Galatians chapter 5. In this book, Galatians, Paul is very concerned about the churches in this region that he's writing to because they seem to be turning to what he calls another gospel, which really is no gospel at all, he says. There were some there who seemed to think that If they kept all of the ceremonial aspects of the law, the Old Testament Jewish law, then they would be saved by their works of the law. And Paul is adamant that salvation cannot come by this means. Salvation is only by grace through faith. They will be justified in God's sight, not by keeping the law, but by faith in Jesus. The only one who perfectly kept God's law. And at the same time, Paul is really careful to show that the law is good. So in chapter three, for example, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Just like when he writes to the Romans and he says that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So that's the context of this letter to the Galatians. Now look with me at chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not Under the law. What does it mean that you are not under the law? What is Paul getting at? Well, this is speaking of the curse of the law, the bondage, the powerlessness that we have to obey it, the death that comes as a result of our failure to meet the standard of the law. As Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. So the curse of the law is death. We fail to meet the law's standard, and the result is the curse of death. But if we are led by the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, then we are no longer under that curse. Let's continue in verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so these works of the flesh that he lists here are things that are against God's law. If you went to the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament law, you will see that it outlaws these things. Things like idolatry, or adultery, or sorcery. Now look at verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And look at the comment that Paul adds here. Against such things there is no law. These things, the fruit of the Spirit, are not opposed to the law. The fruit of the Spirit is not opposed to the law. The works of the flesh are the things that are against the law. But the fruit of the Spirit are the things that are lawful. Now verse 24 and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if you belong to Jesus, then the power of the flesh, that flesh that leads to lawlessness, has been crucified. Why? Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay. The terms are important here. This phrase, keep in step with, literally means to walk in time with. It's like a military march. You know how when you see a bunch of soldiers marching, especially from some countries, you see, you know, it's it's a very well-ordered step, 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 exactly together the whole time. That's the picture here. When the Spirit takes a step, you take the same step. You walk with the Spirit you have new life so walk with the spirit now let me ask you the question where did you get that new life the spirit brought you life he regenerated you so if you live by the spirit you have this new life by the spirit then walk with the spirit Maybe you notice that the first or primary fruit of the Spirit is love. Look back with me at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love fulfills the law. The law was always about love. Love God, love others. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Those who walk in the Spirit love. In other words, they keep the law. They don't do the works of the flesh, but instead they show the fruit of the Spirit. They don't break God's law, but instead they fulfill the law as seen by the evidence of love and the other fruits of the Spirit in their lives. Hopefully, you can see this principle about the law, which we've noticed this morning. Those who walk by the Spirit fulfill the law. Let me take you to another passage. We've got a couple more to go. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. And this is really cool. I hope this is one of those aha moments for you, like it was for me. Go with me to Ezekiel 36. So back into the Old Testament, into the prophets. And we're going to look at Ezekiel 36 starting in verse 22. In this chapter, Ezekiel 36, God is speaking to his people while they are in exile. They've been taken to Babylon because of their sin. God is promising there will be a day when they will be restored. He gives a vision of salvation and of this end time temple where God and his people will be together. It's a vision that promises their restoration to the land, but it really goes beyond that because it's speaking of this ultimate salvation that is found in Christ and his his eternal kingdom. And specifically, this description is the new covenant that God will establish with his people through Christ. So Ezekiel 36, let's begin in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So this is the promise of the new covenant that God is giving. God will restore his people and cleanse them. Now verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God promises a new heart and a new spirit. And he says he's going to put that in them. He's going to bring about an internal change in them. Now here's the key verse, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now pay attention to this. God says he will put his spirit within his people. And when he does this, what will be the result? By his spirit, God will cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules God's statutes and rules are His laws. And when God puts His Spirit in people, the result will be they walk in His laws. But God does not say He will give them a new law. The Spirit will cause them to walk in God's old, unchanging laws. God's law doesn't change. But now that the Spirit is within his people, we're empowered to walk by the Spirit, which is another way of saying to walk in his laws. Here's what Jonathan Edwards had to say about this. He says, the leading of the Spirit, which God gives his children, which is peculiar to them, is that teaching them his statutes and causing them to understand the way of his precepts which the psalmist so very often prays for, especially in the 119th Psalm, and not in giving of them new statutes and new precepts. He graciously gives them eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. See, this is why walking in the spirit fulfills the law. As our principle this morning says, Let me give you another comment from someone that I think is helpful. This is Philip Hughes. He says, neither God changes nor his law. Okay, remember, what is the law? It's a transcription of God's character. It reveals who he is. God doesn't change, so that transcription doesn't change. The difference, he writes, between the old and the new covenants is that under the old, That law is written on tablets of stone, confronting man as an external ordinance and condemning him because of his failure through sin to obey its commandments. Whereas, under the new covenant, the law is written internally within the redeemed heart By the dynamic regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, so that through faith in Christ, the only law keeper, and through inward experience of His power, man no longer hates but loves God's law and is enabled to fulfill its precepts. So those who walk by the Spirit fulfill the law. Now, before we go on to work on applying this a bit more specifically, I wanna point out one more reason that we can't pit the spirit against the law. The spirit and the law are in perfect agreement. And one reason for that is the perfect agreement and harmony that always exists between the persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always in perfect agreement. So, if the law is the transcription of the holy character of God, and it's given and commanded by the Father, and it's loved and obeyed by the Son, then we should expect that the Spirit also will be in agreement with that law. Greg Bonson says it this way. He says, Just as the Son delights in the holy law of his Father, Even so, the Spirit of God promotes the law as a pattern of sanctification. Neither the Son nor the Spirit can be placed in opposition to the Father's law. If this were not so, the unity of the Trinity would be dissolved. Now, I wish we had more time to unpack that. I'll have to wait till another time. So let's look more specifically at how this principle, that those who walk by the Spirit fulfill the law, is applied in our lives. Turn with me now to Matthew 22. Matthew 22 is the last place I'm gonna have you turn. Here we find that Jesus is asked a question about the law. The question is asked by a lawyer who is trying to test Jesus. But Jesus, of course, answers it with no problem. And I think that what Jesus says here is really helpful to us in understanding this this morning. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. 22:34. 34 But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when Jesus is asked the question about which commandment is the greatest one, he doesn't say, oh, I'm doing away with the law. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, we saw in Matthew 5, Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to, to fill it up to its full and proper measure. What Jesus does is he points right back to Deuteronomy 6, the core of the Jewish understanding of the law. It's what's called the Shema Israel. It's what the Jews recited every morning and every evening. What's the greatest law? Love God with all you are. What's the next greatest law according to Jesus? Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus says every other law in the Old Testament law can be summed up in these two. Can I just point out the obvious? What that means? That means the summary of the entire law is love. Love God and love others. What does love look like? It looks like obedience to God's law. It looks like law keeping. What are all the laws in the Old Testament about? how to live out your love for God and others. There's no conflict between love and law. No, law is the concrete expression of love. Love is the essence of the law. And again, that's why our principle this morning holds, those who walk by the Spirit fulfill the law. So here's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 that Jesus is referencing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Let me make three brief observations about those verses. Then I'll give you three applications. Okay. Observation number one. The statement that God is one means that the law is one. We live in an age of multiculturalism and pluralism and relativism and really pluralism is just polytheism. It's many gods. Nobody today knows how to say this is true and that is false. This is a good law and that is a bad law. This is good and that is evil. But there's one unchanging God and he's given us one unchanging law which reveals his character to us. So Christians should learn God's law and should have confidence in it. Okay, observation number two. God's law brings together law and spirit, mind and heart. These verses, which introduce God's law, and we know that we are empowered to obey the law only by the spirit of God, these verses speak to both mind and heart. Love God with all you are. Listen to what Hebrews 8.10 says. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, where Ezekiel says that God's spirit will be put within us, the author of Hebrews says that God's laws will be put within us the spirit and the law, the mind and the heart. Thomas Manton comments on this. He says the meaning is that he will enlighten our minds for the understanding of his will and frame our affections, our heart, to the obedience of it. Well, then, you must keep it in your minds and affections. Okay, Observation number three. The logic of what we've seen brings us back full circle to Psalm 119. Here's what I mean. J. Gresham Machen said, The gospel does not abrogate God's law, but it makes men love it with all their hearts. Follow the logic. If the law is a transcription of God's holy character, and the first commandment is to love that God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we should love God's law with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because that's what displays to us who God is. And that's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 119:97, "Oh, how I love your law." Can you say that? Do you have that understanding of God's law? So then finally, three applications. First, this should cause us to examine ourselves. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on the first three verses of Psalm 119 in which he encouraged his people to let this psalm examine their hearts. He saw the psalm as, quote, a long and particular and full description, end quote, of what godliness looks like. So he called it a touchstone chapter in the Bible By which we should examine ourselves. We know that the law can function like a mirror that shows us the reality of who we are. And this psalm can serve in the same way, like a standard for us to measure ourselves against. Do I love God's law? Second, if the law is a guide for me to examine myself, then it's also a guide on how we should love appropriately out in the world. Bear with this quote from Jonathan Burnside. It's a little bit long, but I think it's really helpful. He says, biblical law is a guide on how to love appropriately. However, this is not merely an agenda for improved interpersonal contact. It's also an agenda for institutions. In biblical law, Love for God and love for neighbor influences the design of our financial and lending relationship, our political relationship, our conditions of employment, our impact upon the environment, and so on. Love is institutionalized because the law is love and it's showing us what that looks like in concrete form in the world. He goes on, And by the way, that means that it's not tyrannical to have God's love set the agenda, God's law set the agenda for what the world should look like. (laughs) This means that from the perspective of biblical law, spiritual jurisprudence goes far beyond the mere recognition that belief in God in one form or another is among the influences upon law and legal practice. Instead, it sees the law as having a transcendent reference point in the God of Israel. And that its primary concern, okay, the law's primary concern is with promoting love for God and neighbor. That's what the law is all about. He says, its goal, the goal of the law, is to develop a worldview that is shaped at every point by an understanding of what it means to live a life of love as persons made in the image of God, and which, in turn, feeds into our understanding and aspirations regarding the sort of world we want to live in. The best thing for the world, the most loving thing for the world, would be that God's law would shape our society. Third, and finally, we should take both the spirit and the law as our guides. Listen to Thomas Manton's wisdom here. He says, Sheep have a shepherd as well as a fold. Children that learn to write must have a teacher as well as a copy. So it's not enough to have a rule. We must have a guide, a monitor to put us in mind of our duty. The Israelites had a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. The gospel church today is not destitute of a guide, The Spirit of God is the guide and director to warn us of our duty. So he says the law is like a sheepfold, a sheep pen. It gives us the boundaries within which we live. And the Spirit is like the shepherd who is our guide. So just like the the sheepfold and the shepherd work together for the sheep, so the law and the Spirit work together in perfect harmony in the life of the believer. Oh, how I love your law. Can you honestly say that? Those who walk by the Spirit fulfill the law. So are you walking by the Spirit? Are you walking in God's law? May God grant that together by the power of his Spirit, we learn to love and keep his law. Would you pray with me? Lord, there is so much in this psalm speaking to us of your law, of your word. And we recognize that we fall short both in understanding it and in obeying it. But we want with the psalmist to resolve that we will keep your law. That we will have our eyes fixed on all your commandments. And so I ask, that by the power of your spirit, you would teach us to walk in your laws. And that in doing so, we would be evidencing our love for you and our love for others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.